Hello and welcome to the Scottish Music Centre's Amplified podcast. I'm Laura and each episode I'll be chatting to a Scottish-based musician and finding out about some of the music that matters most to them. This week I'm speaking to composer Rory Boyle. Hello Rory, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. And you? I'm well, thank you. Good, 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 good. So could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yes, uh, well, I'm, my name's Rory, Rory Boyle. Um, I'm a composer now, sort of full-time, because I've retired from teaching. I was at the Conservatoire for 20 years, um, and I live in lovely little southwest corner of Scotland where there are very few people, but lots of animals. Yes, you were showing me your lovely garden there. there. Yes, very with the stoat, with the mad stoat that is going around, <laughs> yes. occupying... He's occupying all the mole runs, which is quite good because he kills the moles for me. But um, he's, a, he's a great creature, the stoat. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Providing you with much lockdown entertainment. Indeed. Indeed. If it hadn't been for the animals, I think we would have struggled, my wife and I, because we've enjoyed so much seeing what's what's going on around here and watching them. How, how uh, has this lockdown affected your musical activity then? Well, it's, I'm just very grateful that I have that as an outlet because it's, mm. um, you know, I, I, having always done that, um, it, it's meant that I've just got on and no excuse not to write. So um, I, I've been able to do a lot of that and, and look back over some things and change some things from previous pieces and discover that I actually wrote one or two half decent pieces a long time ago, but they could be made to be a little bit more decent. And I also at the same time discovered that I'd written a lot of absolute tosh that doesn't deserve to be uh, <laughs> uh, out there at all. So it's been very, very good for me, actually, in many ways. <laughs> Do you think it's important to self-edit when you're a composer and choose what you want your body of work to look like? I think as you get older, yes, I think that's right. I don't think when I was younger, I took much notice. You know, you were just so you finished mm. one piece and you were onto the next piece. Uh, and I wish I had maybe taken a little bit more notice now then. But, but in many ways, I, I think my, 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 well, I have to say so myself, my best corpus of work has come in the last 30 years. Um, I think, yes, with hindsight, I, I don't think I would have, I was never a great reviser when I was younger, not, not at all. But I have started to look at a few things, you know, wondering, you know, was there any merit in these pieces? And yes, I think there was, um, but, but, but they needed cutting and pruning and changing. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, I think it's, as, as you get older, yes, you, 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 become, you become more aware of what, is, what you're going to leave behind. So I think, yes, mm -hmm. yes, I think it's been, a, it's been a very good time, actually. I've enjoyed it. So one of your pieces that you've picked uh, must be associated with some early memories for you, because it's uh, Tell Laura I Love Her. There we go, yes. Why oh, did you pick that? Ricky Valance. <laughs> well, it was the first, it was, yes, when you said, you know, pick out some, some music that is important to you, or that, you know, and I, I have tried to pick out things that, that have been important in my life. Tell Laura I Love is not important at all musically, uh, except, that, uh, except that for me, when I was nine, it was the first single I bought. Uh, and I think, there was, I think there was something like seven and sixpence or nine and sixpence, or less, than, less than 50p. Uh, and it was the first one I bought. I must have saved up all my pocket money. And my sister, I remember she was buying something. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, and I'd heard this, tell Laura I love her. And I thought it was, there was something wonderfully romantic about this, what is essentially a ballad 
about uh, Laura and Tommy, and you know he gets everybody knows it. He gets he he, he gets killed in a stock car race trying to uh, win the race as a thousand pounds so that he can buy a wedding ring. You know that's what he wants to do to to, to marry his true love. And and as a nine year old, I found that deeply sort of romantic and it's a wonderful idea. But then. Of course, what 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 I find so funny about it is that you know you get this terrible sadness of of the tell Laura I love her um, chorus that comes, but each time that is introduced by that little uprising uh, little uh, um, guitar bit, which tell Laura I love, and, and there's something terribly funny about that. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and and I how sad is this? I could virtually tell you the entire words verbatim. Uh, so I spent my, a lot of time listening to that piece. So there you go. It's funny how when you're in your formative years like that, the lyrics and words and, you know, they just sink in and then they, they stay yes. there forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't remember, like, birthdays and things like that. <laughs> and then you've got, yep. this, you've got the whole of the lyrics to that song in your head. <laughs> I know, I know. And I said to, when I said to my wife the other day that, you know, when you asked me to choose, I said, I'm going to choose, choose this one. And she said to me this morning, she said, you know, I can't get that flaming tune out of my head. I've been singing it all the time. Because oh, no. she's, she's the same vintage, you see. So there you are. We were both nine when, when Ricky Valance sang. I saw, sadly, that he died the other day. That's what prompted me as well. It was about literally 10 days ago, Ricky Valance had died. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's something from my past. Yes, yeah, very much from my past. The words are so funny. I mean, you know, the rhyming, <laughs> couplet, the rhyming couplets of it, you know, um, What's that wonderful verse? He drove his car to the stock car race. He was the youngest driver there. The crowd roared as they started the race at a deadly pace. I remember it goes, they started the race at a deadly pace. It's, it's written like some kind of wonderful Victorian ballad, you know, the kind of thing that McGonagall might have been. I was, I was just about to say McGonagall. That's, <laughs> that's the kind of caliber you're working at yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah, it's not, not highbrow. It's not Cole Porter. Mm, or no. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't musically or even lyrically that important then. No, <laughs> but it must no. have. It must have been. It, you're talking about buying your first record and things, and that's an, an important memory that people. Have. Talking about my first record, yeah. yeah. And and I loved, I loved pop music. You know, I mean, I you know, I I am the vintage. You know, one of the the, the, the many millions. You know, during the Beatles time, and and. Pop music, you know, every generation always says it's pop music is better than everybody else's. Well, I reckon ours was much better than anybody else's anyway. But uh, my mother was uh, my mother was a great collector of popular music, and I play them a lot, and they're great stuff. I, you know, I, I, I've got pretty Catholic taste really all the way through. <laughs> so, what was your early life like then around that time? About that time, we were living in um, we we. We lived in Edinburgh. Uh, my first memories are in Edinburgh. Um, uh, we lived in, in in Murrayfield area. I always remember hearing the noise of the crowd going mm. to the rugby matches at Murrayfield, and they, the cars used to park in our road. Uh, we lived there until I was seven, uh, and then no, till we till I was nine. Sorry, I, I lie. And then we moved to a farm in Stirlingshire, and. Uh, but we used to visit my grandmother a lot. She lived in Ayr, and we used to. And I can remember listening to "Tell Laura I Love Her" in in the little room I had in in her house in Ayr, actually. 
Um, but then we moved to Stirlingshire and uh, lived on a farm there. It was great. I, you know, I was driving tractors when I was 10. Uh, it was a happy time, lovely place to live, Stirlingshire. I'm still a Sterling Albion supporter as well, because once you, you live in a place where you support a football team, you never lose it. And mm -hmm. uh, I never get to see them now. But um, yeah, I still follow Sterling Albion for my sins. <laughs> so what were you up to musically at that time? I, I was taught the piano from an early age and um, struggled to practice, you know, used to get into a tempo when I had to, oh, is it time to practice? But gradually, I, you know, people seemed to discover that I had musical talents. And then the, the, the wonderful thing was um, becoming a chorister at, at Windsor. Um, it was a, the local minister said, you know, this, this, this guy's musical. You, ought to, you thought about sending him to a, music, uh, a choir school. My mum hadn't thought about that. And she wrote off to two. She wrote off to St George's Windsor and to wrote off to King's College, Cambridge. So I went to St George's. And uh, uh, anyway, a couple long story short, I went to this to the to the audition. And um, my mother had promised me a penknife if I if I was successful because I'd always wanted a penknife, and I, she'd always refused to buy me a penknife. At the end of the day, the the dean came out and said, "We'd we'd, we'd delighted to have your son as a chorister next year." So I went and bought my penknife, <laughs> and that was it. I like <laughs> and that was <laughs> that was five extraordinary years uh, down in Windsor. Um, it was an extraordinary education because you know you you led the normal life of a of a of a boy at school, but you had to sing matins and even song every day of the week, apart from Wednesday and three times on Sunday. Uh, uh, and so it it made me it apart from you know introducing me to music that I would never have. Mm come across before particularly Elizabethan music mm -hmm. um, it, it it made me terribly self-disciplined about work I could you know I've always been able to turn my composition hat on and use a half an hour to do something and I I, I, I owe that in quite specifically to my five years as a chorister at Windsor. Mm -hmm. That leads us quite nicely on to one of your other pieces that you've chosen the, the Thomas Talos. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about why I mean, you mentioned Elizabethan music, but can you say specifically why that piece is, came to mind? Yes, yes, I can. I, I mean, we, we did a lot of Elizabethan music, but when you're a 9, 10, 11 year old chorister, we, we, we thought Elizabethan music was really dull, to be honest. And we sung a lot of it, a lot of Bird, a lot of Talis, a lot of Gibbons, you know, and uh, it was all, it, it didn't mean very much to me in those days. But this little, I always, I do remember the uh, Talis Onata Lux, which is this tiny, for me, little gem of a piece. Um, it's really just a little hymn. It's called a hymnus. Uh, and I remember singing it at, at, at Windsor, and, and, and it, it, it sort of spoke to me in some ways. You know, it's, it's one of the Elizabethan. Now, this is interesting. And of course, I didn't know it because I didn't know the technical terms, but it has two of the most wonderful um, uh, uh, dissonances in it. Um, you know, the um, false relations, astonishing uh, at, the, at the two cadences that, that mark the two sections of the piece. Um, and the second half is repeated. So, you know, in performance of it, you, it, it's right at the end, you hear this slowed up grinding. It's basically a D major chord where there's an F natural against the F sharp, and then the tenor moves to an E flat before going to the D. So you get these mm. this extraordinary dissonance. and. Um, I, I became, became sort of quite interested in Talis and, and indeed used Anata Lux as a piece I wrote for brass quintet and organ. 
a lot a lot later but for me this little onata looks is just a gem i could i could listen to it forever when you were at school did they teach you much about the context around the music that you were singing or was your response more just to the sounds that you heard it was it was just a job you did to be honest you okay. know it was just a job so it was a you know and being windsor you know famous people would sort of pop their clogs and we'd be called up to do special services um you know for for famous people that had that had died suddenly you know so uh, and then of course being the, the queen's residence you know there was a guard services and, but you know when i look back what, what a what, what a privilege mm -hmm. and just to, to to take in all that music you sang Mm -hmm. you, you 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 know it, it made your ability to sight sing anything you know yeah. and you didn't realize it was just part of it just what you did mm -hmm. to be honest and um, but wonderful wonderful but thinking of music in that way already as a job when you were quite a young person I would assume that that's kind of set you up quite well for being a composer because first of all it gives you the idea that working in music is possible and also it gives you self-discipline that most other people don't have because I think as a composer you have to drive your own creative output and you know manage your own time very efficiently and things like that and those it sounds like those were skills you were learning when you were really quite young yes I, 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 well, I'm sure I, but but the, you're not aware of them are you no, you know, you, that no. was just was just what I did between the ages of eight and 13 that's, yeah. that's that was my life and uh, but yes, oh gosh, I don't think I'd be a musician without it. No. There, there were inspiring people, you know, there was a, the, the director of music there who was the assistant organist, Clement McWilliam, the most lovely man. Uh, I became godfather to his, his son and, and, and he was a friend all, all, all through my life. But these people, you know, when, you, when you're lucky enough to have somebody who teaches you, because he taught me the piano, uh, who, who actually inspire you in such an extraordinary way, you, 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 that that's terribly important. I mean, he, he was the first who sort of said, "Look, you can do this." Mm -hmm. And and so, if it wasn't for for people like that who believed, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure what I would have done because, you know, I've, I've got precious little talent for anything else, really. Um, you know, five O five O levels and one A level uh, for a start. And when we got married, I remember saying to my wife, "I said, look, there's just one thing about this." I'm rubbish at anything. I mean, I can just about change a plug, but don't expect me to do anything else. So if I hadn't been able to write music and earn my living by doing a bit of teaching, um, God knows what I'd have done. So I'm very grateful for all those, all those things that I experienced when I was younger. Yeah, and confidence is an important thing. You know, the self-belief to know that you're on a path where you're doing something that you are good at and that you, even when things are quite difficult, that you will struggle through and get somewhere with it so when did you actually start composing then because you're talking about being young and being a, cho a chorister but you weren't were you actively writing it or when did you start to think oh I could actually create this music that I perform I don't know whether there was a moment when I actually had that sort of you know Damascan sort of thought mm. but certainly when I was sort of I was I used to tinker away with things you know and uh, even when I was quite little um, but um, I suppose 15, I was about 15, 16, 15. Okay. Um, then I realized that I, you know, I was, in, I, 
I would prefer to go and write music than practice the piano and get better at the Schubert impromptu. <laughs> and, and the other thing that I realized, and this is why I'm, I, I would never have been a decent pianist, um, was that I, I sort of skipped over the bits that I found technically a bit tricky. <laughs> but, also, but also would change bits that I thought, you know, when I played them to myself, I, I, I sort of changed them a bit because I thought it might be better if it went like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, which is the most appalling, it's a dreadful arrogance. It made me realize that perhaps my, I, my career as a pianist would not be, not be very, it would be very short lived. <laughs> and actually, you know, uh, and I preferred to spend the time writing. I'm a decent pianist, but I mean, I would never have been able to, to, to make any sort of career as a pianist. And then, so you were in Glasgow for your, was that your first degree then studying composition? Yeah, no, that there? was, uh, I was in Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I went there when I was 17. Then I went to study privately with Lennox Barclay in London because um, I moved, I, I went to, I did various odd jobs. Um, uh, and uh, I worked as a copyist um, for a lovely guy called George Bamford who lived in a tower block near Euston. And that was a fantastic experience as well. I, I, copied, I copied almost almost all of the orchestral score music of Tommy by The Who when it was done in the orchestral okay, version. Yeah. Uh, I did a lot of the Avengers music. I remember cop copying all that out and going to the recording sessions. It was fascinating and that again helped me to write very quickly and to proofread my own stuff mm -hmm. as well. So at, at that time then you were obviously exposed to quite a lot of music then so you've already talked about learning about Elizabethan music through being a chorister and then you you've obviously were exposed to a lot of the piano repertoire you'd been composing, you'd already been in Glasgow doing your degree, and then you were working with orchestral material, looking at film scores, and you know, you talked about the who and everything. And so what kind of music were you actually interested in and passionate about at, at, at that time? What was influencing you? Uh, I suppose I ought to rewind a wee bit, because again, this, 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 this wonderful director of music I told you about, Clement Williams, and I can remember this one particular day, Clement took me over to the, to the music, uh, to his lovely music room, and um, he said, oh, before we play the piano, just, just listen to this, and he had this um, LP, and I can remember the cover, because I went and bought one myself with a picture of a peacock and it was the Stravinsky Symphony in Three Movements and the Stravinsky Symphony in C and he just put on on a gramophone which he made he was that kind of talented bloke he used to make gramophones um, and he put this this on the beginning movement of the Symphony in Three Movements that extraordinary um, riff that the, the piano does and I'd never heard anything like I was 10 I suppose I'd never heard anything like this before so I thought Blimey, I've got, oh, this is amazing. And and that opened the door to me. And he also introduced me to Frank Marta. I think mm -hmm. that's another of my choices. Um, Frank Marta, a, a, a composer who's sadly neglected, but his Petit uh, Symphonie Concertante is just an extraordinary piece. And of course now, having studied it a bit, you know, and being, I wasn't aware of it at the time. For me, it was just wonderfully exciting music. It makes me smile every time I hear the last movement. But it's so cleverly constructed, you know, how a composer who is struggling with how to make uh, tonal music out of atonality, because he was surrounded by the second Viennese school, and every composer had to find their own way of doing this. And it's, it's a remarkable, and it's, it's a 12-note row at the beginning of this piece, but you'd never know it. Um, and uh, then when I was a little bit older, uh, um, 
uh, about 15, I remember going to the music library um, and, and they have, we have these two, two sort of booths where you could listen to music on, on the turntables and things. And they had quite a good library and I remember picking out of the shelf Honegger's Symphonies number no. three and five. I didn't know who the hell Honegger was, it was just a name. I thought, well, it was a suprafon name. I can remember it to this day, it had pictures of a rooftop on it. Mm -hmm. Amazing what you remember. Anyway, uh, and I picked up this. I put the Symphony Number no. Five on and put it on. Blew my socks off. The opening movement of that symphony, which has this extraordinary, brash, austere, dark, kind of massive sound. And I thought, wow, blimey, I've never heard music like this before. Now that piece has obsessed me all through my life, and I, I had no idea why, you know, why I was drawn to that piece. And and and, and it was only oh, relatively recently that I was sitting in, in the flat in Glasgow and, and, and I put on another recording of, of Honegger's Fifth Symphony. And I read the programme notes properly. And it was premiered on the day I was born. Yeah. And I, I, I thought that, that, that may be the reason why I've been drawn to this. And uh, when I had the opportunity to write a trio for Fraser Langton, who I've uh, written for quite a lot, I, I needed to mark Honegger. So I, I, I did my own little take on the symphony is called Dietre Ray. So I wrote a piece called Dietre Ray A E O three three times D and me. Uh, and uh, I wanted to sort of mark that sort of uh, importance that that piece has for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I think it's very important that we try to celebrate composers who are rather neglected. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, there's so much um, I better be careful whose music I, I I won't say any composers, but you know, well, uh, okay, I will. In this year, we celebrate Beethoven. Okay, jolly good. But I mean, do we need another recording of Beethoven five? Do we need another recording of Beethoven six? Let's try and sort of at least try and celebrate composers who wrote some fantastic music in their time, but don't get the chance now. And there's such a lot of good music out there which is forgotten, mm -hmm. sadly. Mm -hmm. And I think. You know, it's something that we've discussed a lot before about the, the difficulties of getting new music programmed. But like, I mean, what, what do you think um, it is about, apart from trying to engage audiences and maybe a fear that they won't want to hear something that's new? Apart from that, is there something about that music that you think is difficult for people to hear? I think historically, if we look at, um, you know, the, the period between the, the 40s, 50s, you know, all that sort of stuff. Composers had more or less alienated themselves from an audience completely because, I, you know, they were it was, sort of, it was experimental time. And, and what happened was then was that everything then went full circle. And, and I think it became very difficult for, for young composers to know how to write or what to write, you know. And, and, I, and I saw it with when I was teaching at the conservatoire with, with students, you know, uh, and I always tried to, to say to them, you know, to try not to go with the trend, try not to write music because that is the, what's happening at the moment. You know, the, these, these are the kind of pieces that are getting aired. And I think it's very, very difficult. You have to be, it's called musical integrity, isn't it? And I think whatever, whatever you come up against, you have to be true to yourself. You have to write what's in you. And in answer, I'm not answering your question at all properly, but... All you can do as a composer, I think, this is my own opinion, is to write music that comes from your experience of life. 
I, I haven't answered your question because I, I it's, and it's so strange you know you think about in Bach's time every bit of music had to be new uh, you know they would never think of doing something that he'd written mm -hmm. five years before but nowadays we mm -hmm. seem to be obsessed with playing music of the past people don't read people don't just read books of the past they don't look at paintings of the past well they do but they don't just just look at old mm -hmm. stuff old masters mm -hmm. wonderful as they are what is it about music have we have we lost our connection with the audience so much i don't know what the answer is yeah. i don't know what the answer is laura i think it must be very difficult because of course orchestras mm -hmm. have to balance their books and everything and they have these bums on seats but i don't know people respond in different ways to everything you know, you, and, and I'm always mm. perplexed by people who say, oh, I quite enjoyed that role, but I didn't understand it. Well, there's nothing to understand. It, it, if, if the noises that you hear mm -hmm. or the, 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 the journey that you've been on with the piece, then, and it, it speaks to you in some, some way, then that's, that's, all it, that's all there is to it, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something I spoke about with Hilary Brooks was, you know, that we all hear music very differently. It doesn't matter if you're trained. It doesn't matter what you're trained in. People just have a completely different response to you and I could listen to the same piece of music and have a completely different reaction exactly. to it and I think yeah. that's the beauty of, of it that's the the whole point yeah. of it if everybody thought the same then art wouldn't really have any value absolutely absolutely you're you're you're, you're so right you're so right it's, it's everybody we respond I remember, you know, mm -hmm. I used to, I used to be a bit naughty and say to some of my students so who are you writing for and when they'd say oh the audience you know I'd say well well, which one? The one in row C3 or the one in D8? You're writing for yourself. And maybe, uh, you, you know, the person in C3 will like the second movement of the piece. The person in X4 may, may not. Uh, it, it's just, you, you just, that again, it comes, comes back to, to musical integrity. You just do what you, you can. You do your best. And if it communicates to somebody, as you say, everybody responds differently yeah well you were you were speaking earlier about there being a lot of composers out there who don't get enough attention um a, a couple of composers on your list are people that i think the general population probably haven't heard of maybe you could speak a little bit about the, the granger you've picked a granger oh, piece. Yeah. maybe um say what it is and, and and say as well you know just give a bit of background to that because i think a lot of people won't know who this composer is or or any of their music no uh, percy granger yes a, a very very extraordinary figure um he evidently sight read through, he was a brilliant pianist he was australian he evidently sight read through grieg's piano concerto both the orchestral and the piano the piano part yeah remarkable and he used to walk between concerts he walked half over australia to go from one concert to the next but he had this visionary sort of, he wrote music. And the trouble is nowadays people say, oh yeah, he was all part of that for the folk song revival. He, and, he, and he rediscovered Country Gardens and, and Brig Fair and all those other. But there's so much more to him than that. And uh, yes, he did. I mean, I, I'm a great lover of folk music. And Granger, um, yes, he used folk songs. There are some absolutely beautiful folk song arrangements, but they are extraordinary. The little piece that I, that I, chose this because I played it. I, I used to play two piano stuff with a friend of mine and, and one of them was, was this little piece, Let's Dance Gay in Green Meadow, which is based on a Faroe Island melody. Uh, and it's just such a, what is it? it? It makes me smile. It's another piece that makes me smile. It's terribly simple uh, and it has a lovely sort of sudden ending. Uh, and there's something 
warm and gentle about it. I'm, I'm waxing all lyrical now. And, you know, as I get older, I become, you know, I'm, I, I'm, 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 my rough edges are being sort of, you know, smoothed over. But it, it's, a, it's a beautiful little piece to play and it's a, just a beautiful piece to, to listen to. But there is so much extraordinary Granger out there. You know, some extraordinary, he was a visionary sort of composer. There are some really brilliant, uh, arrangements of things. Um, an interesting man. I mean, strange man. But if you read his biography, it's, it's a, he was a strange, strange guy, certainly. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, I think he's rather he's rather neglected. I think Granger. Yeah, yeah. These composers that you're obviously very aware of that a lot of other people wouldn't have heard of. Do you kind of actively? seek out trying to find people that you've not heard of before or is it something that you generally have kind of stumbled across by accident one way or another um i suppose i've looked them out a little bit i mean i've um th through connections with myself i suppose you know when, when um, i mean i um uh one of the pieces that won a, won a prize out in poland was 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 the prize was the Kazimierz Zorotsky Prize. Now, I'd never, I'd never come across the music of Zorotsky, Polish composer, one of the great um, band of, of extraordinary composers working in the mid 20th century. Um, you know, Lutosławski, Penderecki, Tadeusz Baird, uh, and, and um, Zorotsky was one of them. And yeah, there are some wonderful little piano pieces by Zorotsky. I mean, it's all quite experimental stuff. But I discovered them, and, and in fact, I remember introducing them to a second study compo uh, composer at the conservatory, who was a, uh, his principal study was piano. And I suggested uh, Zorowski preludes to him for his recital, and he, he listened to them and said, Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Um, so I was delighted to be able to at least, you know, um, his music's not performed very much now. Edison Denisov, another one, and he was discovered by. Shostakovich. Shostakovich was was uh, said, you know, because because Edison Denisov himself was studying, um, you know, mathematics and, and and engineering and everything. And he said, "Hey, you ought to do you ought to do composition. Your your pieces are and and there are some wonderful pieces by him, absolutely beautiful that I've discovered more recently." Um, so yes, I I I don't um, you know I think as you get old as you get older again, sadly, I don't listen to as much music as I used to. Um, I, I suppose I've sort of, you know, I'm in my my jaundiced way, I've I've decided what I like and what I don't like, uh, and uh, I won't go through the list. But um, you know, I, 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 you become less inquiring. But then occasionally, you know, something um, come you come across something. Wow, you know, it's the discovery of things is 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 still wonderful. And I always think for a young composer to discover anything and get excited by it, that's what it's all about. You, you, you discover something, you get excited by it. That's fabulous. That's that'll point you in a direction to go to go somewhere else. That's interesting that you say that because the other two people that I've spoken to, and who've picked music, have both talked about that curiosity being very important. Both of them, people who write music themselves, and just trying to find something that excites you. Both of them were saying that that was very important in their formative years. So it's, it seems to be a bit of a theme mm. that's emerging. And I suppose just from hearing you speak about, you know, your involvement with young people and you know, teaching them and things, it's, it's, that's been really, you know, with the others we've spoke about music that we'd like to pass on to people. And I think that 
comes across from you that that's something that you want to pass on to young people is like a curiosity yeah yeah i would certainly do that yeah yeah and and to just get excited by things you know to enjoy things have not say there's enough there's enough things not to enjoy in this world at the moment and you know music is i mean it is it is a power of good it really is it is a power of good and it can help you discover all sorts of things about yourself about the world um you know i i you know, obviously it's an important thing in my life it has been all all, all my life but um I, I do think one underestimates the power of music at one's peril. It's it's very powerful. Um, yeah. It's a very powerful force for good. So that I think brings us to the last piece that you've got on your list, which is the theme from I Claudius. Oh yes, yes. Well, uh, there are two reasons for choosing that. One is that it links rather nicely with Frank Martin, because actually it's based on. Uh, a 12 note row the, the bass clarinet plays a descending chromatic scale of 12 notes under the i claudius theme and the other reason i chose it because i think it's real quality film music i mean wilfred josephs i think he's still alive wilfred josephs so he, he um he, and i remember i claudius it was a fantastic uh, fantastic uh, thing on the bbc um, and it, it conjures it all up. It's a brilliant, brilliant theme. Uh, the, the intrigue, the nastiness, the, uh, it's spine chilling stuff, but it's, it's, it's wonderful music. And Wilfred Josephs was one of the, the great pioneers of, of film music and television music, particularly with the BBC. Um, and I, Herbert Chappell is another one. In fact, I remember writing to the BBC when I was, thinking how do I earn some money as a composer maybe I could do some film stuff with it and I wrote to the BBC and of his own back Herbert Chappell wasn't Wilfred Joe but Herbert Chappell wrote to me and I've kept the letter because it was such a nice letter you know and it said um basically what he was encouraging saying you know all I can say to you is that constant knocking on doors will eventually work keep keep persevering of course I didn't because I wasn't that interested it was just a case of I thought that may be an easier way of making money than writing, you know, hour-long symphonies that nobody's going to play. But I, I treasure that letter because he, did, he didn't need to write that. And I've always thought that's the kind of thing mm -hmm. I would like to try and pass on myself, you know, to share things. It's like um, musicians I've worked with, you know, who've, who've given me tips. Um, just picking some out of the blue, you know, Osh, I, I was lucky enough to have a piece that had a harp part and it was played by Osh and Ellis, one of the great harpists. And he took me aside, he said, oh, Rory, when you write these harmonics, double them at the octave. There's a very much more, you get much, much more tone that way. And those are the kind of things I hope I pass on to, to you know, my students when I was teaching them, you know, because that, that's, that's, it was given to me free, I pass it on free. There you go, it's, it's one of those things. You've scored a bit for film yourself, haven't you, quite recently? Yeah, I, yes, I have. I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of working for uh, Murray Grigger on two films, two film scores. That was fabulous because working for somebody who, who is, is so wonderful that they trust you to, to, to do it um, means that, I have, that you have a free hand. Um, and I, I love doing that. Again, it's a, it's a wonderful discipline, you know, to, to have to, to, to say something in yeah. one minute yeah. that you can't take 10 minutes to say and to underscore something and to be aware of your role as a, as a composer mm -hmm. underscoring a film.
the word is the clue is in the underscoring yeah. you know it, it it's just got to be there it's got to enhance and reinforce something yeah. that's happening but it mustn't take over it must be second fiddle if you like yeah that that again has come up before when i spoke to hillary brooks she was talking about bernie terman and how much she admired her scoring and, you know and she was talking about how she's impressed by the the subtlety of the of how it's conveying something that's integral to the film. You know, the, the role of music there is so important. Yeah, I remember, I, 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 to, going back to Andre Previn, those programmes that he used to, he did a, he, a fascinating programme once. I remember telling some of my students mm. about this, about, about film music. And, and he said, you know, a little, always, always remember that a little is, is almost too much. By the way, Bernard Herrmann, Bernard Herrmann, fantastic composer. I have his signature. The RCS uh, sometimes had, did, did, did these things. They would sell things from the library, and there was this score. It was a sort of spiral bound. It was, and um, it, it, the front cover said uh, Bernard Herrmann, Moby Dick, cantata. I had no idea that Bernard Herrmann had written a, a cantata called Moby Dick, so I thought, oh, so I put my fifty p in for that, but took it back to my room, forgot all about it. And then a few, a few weeks later, I, I picked it up, and then I noticed that the opening page was a bit stuck, so I, I, I opened it. And there in, in Bernard Herrmann's writing, it says, to the best Ahab there's ever been. It was obviously written for the person that played the part of Ahab. And he put a little musical quote from the, the, the theme that Ahab sings, and then he signed it, Bernard Herrmann. So I've kept that, I've kept that. That was the best 50p I've uh, spent <laughs> for a long time. Because uh, the RCS didn't know that they, that they had the Bernard Herrmann signed copy, and I'm not going to tell them. The trouble is they'll know now, but there we go. <laughs> We won't tell them we've recorded this. <laughs> no, quite. <laughs> well, that seems like a good place to leave it then. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you Indeed. very much, Rory. And oh, Laura, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Amplified with Rory Boyle. You can find out more about Rory and his work at scottishmusiccentre.com forward slash Rory hyphen Boyle. And one final thing to mention is that the music you can hear playing in the background is by Richard Greer.